final end point. You've got to wrap it up. I think maybe the next one will be the last one. Right, we'll start. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communistic revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Workers of the world unite. Do you agree, James? I remember you had a go at me when I used a quote when I started my... (laughs) But, um, yeah. Who wrote those words? Marx. Yes, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels in the Communist Manifesto of 1848. They were the final words. The starting words were, a spectre is haunting Europe. The spectre of communism. Mm -hmm. And there was this idea that a communist revolution was imminent, particularly in Germany. Marx said that it was on the eve of a revolution. Yet, as we know, that didn't happen in Germany in 1848. In fact, our examples of communist revolutions come mostly in the 20th century and mostly appear to be absolute disasters. Mm -hmm. Um, In the face of it. As Winston Churchill said, socialism is a philosophy of failure, the creed of ignorance and the gospel of envy. Its inherent virtue is the equal sharing of misery. The idea that this premise of equality doesn't lead to good equality, it leads to an equal share of horrible conditions. Okay. So in today's episode, we're going to look at a very popular phrase that people say when it comes to socialism and communism, and we are going to differentiate between those two. You'll, you'll be glad to Thank God. Yeah. I just, I need one podcast to really dive deep into these matters. I'm glad that <laughs> into we... Into the dialectics. Into the dialectics. There's a very common thing which people say, and I'm sure you've heard this before, and you might even said it before, which is when you hear about socialism and communism, the ideas of sharing and equality and people being equal... People say, sounds good, mm. in principle. Sounds quite nice. The theory is there, mm. but... Put it in practice, don't work. Yeah. yeah, in practice, it doesn't work. <laughs> so we are going to be seeing, in this episode, episode seven of Repeat Until Funny, mm-hmm. has socialism always failed in practice? And if so, why has it failed in practice? Let's start off, though, with socialism itself. That word, socialism... What kind of ideas do you associate with that? I know the NHS is a socialist institution. Why is the NHS a socialist institution? Because it's uh, all about... uh, You don't have to pay for it. Yeah. Uh, And it's run by the government. Mm -hmm. So government control is considered to be an important part Ah, of socialism. Good centralised government is key in a socialist society. Yeah, so the government acting in the interests of the people mm. rather than in the interests of money and capital mm-hmm. and profit. So the NHS is a good example and it's called in America, they call it socialised medicine. <laughs> socialised medicine. Any attempt to try and make the, the healthcare system more accountable to people through the state rather than through basic money. Red medicine. Red medicine, yeah. <laughs> few Marx quotes, and I'll see, see if you agree with some of these. Mm. Because basically, spoiler alert, socialism is very hard to define. Oh. Very hard to define. And there is a definition that I'm going to give, but the way it has been defined, I would argue, has often led to its failures. Okay. Here are some Marx quotes that give us some sort of idea of what his political philosophy was about. The first one. The ruling ideas of each age have ever been the ideas of its ruling class. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna say it and then you're gonna try and translate it into oh uh... patois. <laughs> don't translate it into patois. I don't know what but into patois, youth, is. patois is like wagwan and oh right. <laughs> but translate it into youth speak. The ruling uh, ideas of each age have ever been the ideas of its ruling class. Well, fat cats were always the ones that were in mm. charge of us. So the idea that whoever's in charge dictates what other people think. Mm. So in a society that is capitalist, so capitalism is the idea of chasing money and profits. Deals in the dollars. Deals in the dollars, making money and yeah. the market. In that society, which champions and celebrates people being individuals and consuming and being greedy, mm-hmm. that system will create people who are individualistic, consumeristic and greedy. Who would have known? Yeah, I know. It's amazing, isn't it? And it's the same way that, say, in a class, if you have a really angry and erratic teacher, the class tends to be angry and erratic. Mm-hmm. It passes down from, from that way. Next quote. And I think you'll relate to this. <laughs> In proportion, as the repulsiveness of the work increases, the wage decreases. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's like talk from experience, James. <laughs> um, well, I used to work in a hotel, not the nicest job in the world, but um, I guess that means sort of the worse your job is, mm. the lower you get paid. Yeah, like the, the less glitter on your job, the less cash in your pocket. In your paycheck. In your paycheck. All right, if you're cleaning plates at the same time you're cleaning toilets, I'm not going to talk about which hotel that is. <laughs> that is disgusting. Not this, not literally in the same place. No, no, no. no. But just after, which in what order? Uh, plates then toilets. Yeah. Well, that's better. Better yeah. than toilets then plates. It's better than toilets then plates. Unless mm. after. The We're toilet- not animals. <laughs> <laughs> not animals in the jury's in. No. That. Oh. Or the Hilton. <laughs> so yeah, I got paid peanuts. So. Paid peanuts. Get monkeys. The idea then from Marx is that people at the top of the pyramid live a really great life while they're being held up by those at the bottom. And there's a very famous French cartoon, which at the top is like the rich, the fat mm. cats, the bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. as Marx would call them. Eating cake. And well, right at the top, there's kings and it says, we rule you. Mm-hmm. Just below them is like priests and bishops. And it says, we fool you. Mm-hmm. Can you remember what Marx calls religion? Uh, no. Again, tap into your knowledge of drugs. <laughs> he calls it the something of the masses. Uh, the cocaine of the masses. <laughs> <laughs> the opium the of the opium. masses. Oh, something right. that kind of calms them down yeah, and yeah. soothes them. So we've got, we rule you, we fool you. Then you've got like the fat cat middle class mm. sitting at a table. And it says, we eat for you. Mm-hmm. Just below then you've got soldiers and it says we shoot you mm-hmm. and right at the bottom are your common working people, salt of the earth. Salt of the earth, average job. Proletariat, yeah. as Marx would call them, and they're holding up the whole system on their back. Mm. So even though the jobs like cleaning the toilets and washing plates and things like collecting rubbish and box working factory. in the sewers, working the box factory, all the things that James had done. <laughs> he didn't work in the sewers, but we did go on a sewer tour. We did go on the sewer tour. Yeah. All those jobs, which are crucial for society, actually pay the worst. Mm-hmm. And they actually give the least to the people doing them. Mm-hmm. So in essence, the theory of communism, as Marx says, may be summarised in a single sentence. <clears throat> the abolition of private property. Okay. So that people 
cannot own things in a society where it should all be shared, where resources should be shared. And we're going to break that down in a little bit more detail. Dive into that one. We're going to dive deep into that one. Private property, Marx argued, is the product of alienated labour. Alienated, when you're alienated, you what? Uh, You are sort of outcasted. Yeah, so you feel different. If you're alienated from society, you're outcast from society. If you're alienated from your labour, you feel separate from your work. And the worker becomes disconnected from the products they create because they create a product and then they hand it immediately over to their employer. Mm. Marx thinks that we inherently like to produce things and we gain joy in producing things but as soon as we hand them over to someone else we lose that Mm. so it's a little bit like and he points to in factories the division of labor do you know what that means no so in the box factory what did you do I'm glad you asked (laughs) (laughs) did you actually see any finished boxes no that was done a different (laughs) now um I got the nets Mm -hmm. the box put them in the machine well, they went out the other end, and that other guy put them into a larger box. So why didn't you do both those steps yourself? Why didn't you put it into the machine, the net into the machine, and put it into a larger box? Well, because we couldn't reach really the the machine. Well, you could, uh, but what would it do to production? It would halt production. It would, well, it would slow, slow it down, down considerably. Yeah. So before the Industrial Revolution, the way that things were produced largely, let's say you're producing a table. Mm-hmm. One carpenter spends days producing, finishing, making this table. Mm-hmm. With the division of labour, you can say, that guy makes the legs, that guy screws the legs in, that guy puts the top on. I think that describes a table. Yeah, pretty, it's pretty much a table. And, I get, it's like in all the cartoons when they're making like a toy and one guy puts the arms on them. The conveyor one, belt. Yeah. And yeah. it was pioneered by people like um, the Ford motor car, which yeah. is where one person does the wheels, one person does this one. They specialise in a really small part. All the old adverts. Yeah. Your future starts today. <laughs> and like Charlie in the chocolate factory, what does his dad do? Can you uh, remember? He screws on toothpaste lids. Yeah, he screws the top onto toothpaste. That yeah. is division of labour. Yeah. And it's incredibly effective in terms of producing things. You produce them much quicker, but it alienates the person from their labour. Mm. You can't feel good about screwing a toothpaste cap on all day. You get no joy in that. Mm. And Mark says that that is something that capitalism does. And his quote is... The worker, because after all of that, you feel empty and hollow. Mm-hmm. The worker, therefore, only feels himself outside of his work. And in his work, he feels outside himself. Oh, yeah. Which is the idea that we go to work and we sort of just about bear it. Yeah. Yeah. And we just about get well, through not it. Well, <laughs> Just about get through it. And then after work, it's that whole living for the weekend. Yeah. Work is just a reason... Just a way that we can enjoy ourselves mm. extraneously. Yeah. Make enough money, then you're probably... Someone's probably going to give you a raise. And Marx that. says that is wrong. Marx says Ooh. that takes away the fundamental joy, which what we like to do in our lives, which is to create and make and do stuff that's helpful for ourselves and others. Uh-huh. A second component of this theory is something called dialectical materialism. Go on, please. <laughs> Shall I just skip over that? Yeah. Give your audience some credit, It's Ollie. pretty obvious. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's self-explanatory. Dialectical materialism. materialism. Now, this is a response to Hegel, who was a pre- previous historian and philosopher, mm. who talked about dialectical idealism, which essentially means dialectical is that two forces are acting in opposition to each other. Uh-huh. It's almost like a dialogue. Uh-huh. Two things going against each other, 
and through that almost war of words, war of ideas, a better system will come out as a result. Oh. So it's like a compromise will emerge. Like an, like an argument, and you refine your argument through talking with other people. Exactly. Yeah. And that is what dialectical means. So you might have, let's take the example of wages. One person says we should get paid £15 an hour. One says, no, you should get paid £5 an hour. Through that debate, we eventually arrive at... 10. 10. Or more likely, 5.5. 5. 5.1. Yeah. <laughs> so dialectical idealism, as Hegel puts it, is the idea that the world is shaped by human ideas. That through history, competing human ideas contest against each other and eventually one wins out. Mm-hmm. Whether it be slavery, the abolition of slavery, and then after that we get something else, which is wage slavery or working slavery, all mm-hmm. these kind of things. Marx stands that on his head. He says that Hegel's got it the wrong way round. Okay. He says that human ideas don't shape society. Society shapes human ideas. Okay, yeah. He argues that the material, which is where the materialism comes from, the material and economic conditions of society dictate the way we live. So how our society is structured in terms of what is valued and what isn't dictates what kind of people we become. Yeah. And because of that, he argues that history is teleological. Okay. Which means that it goes in an order, like it's a story. Ossifies and calcifies. It ossifies and calcifies into a story. (laughs) And he identified different stages of this story. Uh Stage one, primitive communism. So this was the first stage in our society, in our human existence. Well, he's, he's saying this is the first one. So the f- No, that was the first one, primitive communism. Oh, so right. we're talking prehistoric people mm. living in as hunters in small groups, mm-hmm. like little communes. Yeah. No one exploits everyone else because they all have to work together. The men most likely have to go out and hunt. The women have to stay and look after p- kids and mm. make the food. And as a result, everyone is roughly equal. So that's the first stage, primitive communism. The next stage is slavery. So great warrior kings Mm. in places like ancient Babylon, Egypt and Rome basically exploit the work of masses of slaves. So Mm. it's that amazing thing, which was who was the first person to stand up and say, I'm the king. It's it's a good point. I'm in charge now. I always wondered where that came. Is it just the biggest guy? Who knows? But it's it's the person who... And this is the interesting thing about humans is... In the animal kingdom, yeah, it would be the biggest animal that could fight off all the others. Because mm. humans are a bit more tricky and <laughs> sly, it can just weasley. be it can just be the one that manipulates people or speaks most effectively. Mm. A great rhetorician, someone who who's got the gift of the gab. Big gift of the gab, yeah. They could become the king. Got the natter. And we have in that system, and we, you see it in places like ancient Egypt with the mm. pharaohs. I was going to say, because they, they look really weedy, the pharaohs. Yeah. Whenever I see them, like... But that's the really interesting. Is someone first of all said, I'm king. Mm. And then the, the really clever thing was, I'm king and everyone of my bloodline will be king. That's, that's clever. So it doesn't matter how weedy you are. You can yeah. be the weediest, like, sort of Edward VI after Henry VIII, really weedy young kid. Mm. Doesn't matter because you are the bloodline, so everyone will have to respect you as a king. Oh, yeah. And we have in places like Egypt, the pharaohs get the slaves to build the pyramids and that's how the system works. Mm. So we have a struggle there between two groups, the dialectic almost, between the king and the subjects and slaves. Uh Stage three, feudalism. Now Mm. we're getting into more... It's a futile paradigm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we talked about that, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. 
So this is when the, mo the monarch, so a king or a czar, and a small number of landowning nobles, mm -hmm. a small number of bigwigs, live well by exploiting the peasants who work the land. The smurfs. Serfs. Serfs. We're going to talk about serfs later. Right. And there you've got a class struggle again. You've got the peasant class versus the noble and the aristocratic and the monarchy. Okay. We then have a revolution. Yep. Because we have to go from feudalism to capitalism. Mm. We have what's called a bourgeois revolution. Okay. Who is going to revolt in the feudal system? Oh, the, the lords. The lords against yeah. who? The king. The king, why? Because the lords want more power. The lords want more power, exactly. Okay. So, interestingly, it's not the peasants at this mm. stage rebelling. The peasants are too poor to... Because the lords have had a taste of power. I exactly. Want... And we can see these things developing. It went from... Everyone sort of being equal in a condition mm. where there weren't many resources. Mm -hmm. When resources are more common, you have one person in charge going, I'll have most of the resources, but I need you to go and get all the resources to the yeah. slaves. Yeah. Feudalism, resources are even more common, so it gets shared for a, a wider amount of people. Mm. Society is growing, so you need nobles to administer the regions and things like that. And now we have that bourgeois revolution and capitalism. Yeah. So after the bourgeois revolution, the means of production, which is an important Marxist term, which is the things that are used... Workers are in the means of production. That's socialism. So the means of production are things like factories, mines, banks, mm. all these things that actually create wealth. These are run by private businesses, not by the king, not by the emperor. They're run by private individuals. So some rich guy buys a mine some other rich guy buys a mine and they compete against each other to see who can make the most profit. Yeah, got it. One side sells you all for a tenner and the other side sells it for 9.50. Yeah. Buys and for 9.50. Exactly. Yeah. But Marx argues that they achieve this profit by exploiting the workers, the proletariat. Mm. Because the workers have to put in a huge amount of effort and they get very little in return. Yeah. And even though they are the ones theoretically holding up the whole system... You know, the system doesn't work with without Charlie's dad screwing on the top of the toothbrushes. Exactly. Or you putting the net into a box machine, <laughs> machine or, yeah. or whatever. It doesn't work without that. Yeah. Surprisingly, we were managing toothpaste boxes as well. Really? Yeah. All comes together. All comes together. But all the profits are going upwards mm -hmm. and all the bad conditions are going downwards. Mm. So the people at the bottom are feeling it the worst. Wringing out the worker. Yeah. Trying to get them Interestingly... Capitalism, Marx said, is brilliant because it produces so much stuff. It produces more than anyone could possibly need. Yep. And a very famous quote he says is, what capitalism therefore produces, above all, are its own gravediggers. Ooh, love that. Because the more production yeah. means that there's more money to be made. The more money that's to be made, you need more workers. The more workers you have, the greater group who are going to oppose you, mm -hmm. the greater the group who are going to go, well, this is actually an unfair system. Mm. So it's producing its own gravediggers. Because what will happen, according to Marx, is that conditions will get slowly worse. Wages will get slowly less as the need for labour increases, but also so does the pool of people who are labourers. Yep. It's like if, you, if I've got five jobs to hire in my factory and ten people come to me for that job... Yeah. I can charge, I can get a really low wage. Yeah. 
Because they all want the job. Yeah. It's like a zero-hours contract. Yeah. Yeah. But e- even so, we have things that some might consider socialist, which is a minimum wage. Yeah. In the time of the Industrial Revolution, when Marx was writing, there was no such thing as the minimum wage. That's got to be tricky. So you would have, let's say I have five jobs, and let's say not ten people apply for it, a hundred mm. come desperate to the factory because they need food. They're actually hungry. It's mm. not like they want to get a new Xbox or something, or the new iPhone. They yeah. literally can't eat. Yeah. And I, as the factory owner, they come and they've read my advert, which says, let's say, £2 an hour. They go, I'm here ready for my £2 an hour. Mm. And I go, change my mind, actually. It's only going to be um, £1 an hour. Mm. And they go, well, that's a disgrace. And you go, okay. Go. One git at the back will go, I'll do it. For Some people point. will do it. Yeah. Some people will do it. And then you get them in the job and you mm. say, actually, I'm going to reduce it now to 50p an hour. Mm. And they go, but I can hardly survive on that. And they go, oh, okay, I'll get someone else. Yeah, that, that so it slowly creates its own gra- grave diggers and drives what Marx argued would be a revolution. Yeah. We're seeing some problems. Yeah. Because has capitalism created its own grave diggers? Mm. Maybe not so much in our society. And no. we're going to see maybe why that is. So what happens then? We've had a bourgeois revolution. We've had a revolution of the rich against the king. Yep. Against vested, turgid, <laughs> calcified authority. <laughs> now we have a proletariat revolution where those at the bottom, the workers, rise up and throw out their masters. Yeah. The workers of the world unite. Yep. Because they've got to the point where they've got nothing to lose but their chains. Uh, yeah, I'll see that. This is where it gets complicated. Because up to this point, almost all of that has happened in some way. So Marx was just describing reality as it is. Yeah. Well, did he, as he actually just described everything that happened before him? Yeah. yeah. But now he moves on to telling the future. Soothsaying, yeah. yeah. He doesn't describe in great detail how this revolution happens, but he says that there is going to be capitalism, a revolution... And then a period of socialism. Yep. A socialist transition. Mm. A state acting in the interests of the people. Yeah. He called it the dictatorship of the proletariat. Okay. Now, I was always confused by that phrase because I thought it meant the proletariat, the workers, were being dictated to. But okay. what it actually means is the proletariat are the dictatorship. Okay. So the workers, it's a workers' government yeah. acting only in the interest of workers. But very difficult how you're going to apply that. And he argues that after a amount of time of that transition, yeah. eventually the state as an organisation, so government as we know it, will wither away mm. and communism will emerge. Which what? is... In, from the ashes. From the ashes. Oh. But communism will be a stateless society. So no big state. No government. Yeah. Because it'll be like how we were when we were sort of in the caves, mm. but with much more resources. And it all just goes again. And it just starts just again. Goes, just keep it moving. We reverse. <laughs> but as we're going to see, that is complicated. Yeah. So three examples of socialism in action. The first one is a place called New Harmony in Indiana. Oh, OK. Set up by Robert Owen who was born in Welsh in 1771. Oh. So this is actually pre-Marx and Engels. This is wow. pre the socialist ideas in the Communist Manifesto. Mm. So Robert Owen, I assume you haven't heard of him. No. He became very successful in business. So a big businessman. Big business acumen. Acumen, a lot of business acumen. But he was also a, a big reader of books, obviously. Yeah. And a social reformer. 
He became a manager and a partner in a Manchester cotton mill. Manchester? Mm-hmm. In England? Yeah. Oh, right. So this, this we're going to see what happens here. Oh, right. So he starts up a, a, a cotton mill, and he's known very well for treating his workers with respect. Yeah. And he convinces his partners, like his business partners, to buy the mills in a place called New Lanark, Scotland. Yeah. So he treats his workers very well. He improves their Maybe living. Whips them once a day. Yeah, you know? yeah, just uh, yeah. And not that hard. Not you that know. hard. He's, he's he's quite gentle with the whip. Very gentle. He's a big socialist. <laughs> he improves their living conditions. Yep. He opens a store in the place, so he builds them all houses that they live in oh, near to the mill. He opens a store that sounds good quality goods at just slightly more than what they cost to make. So he's mm. not making a big profit off them. That's good. He supervises the sale of alcoholic beverages. Oh, that's brilliant. Which means that he wants them to drink less. Yeah. He's, he's, at this time we had things like the gin craze, where mm. the working classes in particular were ravaged by alcoholism. Mother's downfall. It, yeah, mother's yeah. sin? What was, what was it called? Oh, it's, it's mo- mother's... Mother's ruin. Mother's ruin. Mother's yeah. ruin. But workers ruin. But workers ruin. Mm. And it's breaking up families, and it's breaking up communities, so he supervises that. And isn't alcohol systematic of a bad living environment? Yes. Or bad... Conditions. Conditions. And again, Marx mm. talks about religion being the opium of the masses. Yeah. You've got to forget that opium Al- is also the opium of the masses. <laughs> yeah. and alcohol yeah. is it also... Is the opium the alcohol slash of alcohol of the masses. masses. In 1816, he opens the first infant school, school in Great Britain. Yeah. The first ever for little kids. So Martin he has the sound, this guy. He... In this school, disregards corporal punishment, so hitting people. Nice. And emphasises character development. Mm. Might not like this. There's dancing and music in the curriculum. Oh. <laughs> that's, mm. So that's when you think, when you think socialist, you think yeah. a lot of dancing. A lot of dancing, a lot, lot of like... Songs about the yeah. man. <laughs> All sitting together, not really doing anything. During an embargo, a trade embargo between the USA and the UK, so they weren't trading any cotton at this point. Okay. Slavery is still in existence, by the way. So cotton coming over from America and then oh, being right. milled in English mills or Scottish mills. Mm. During the war of 1812, where Britain had tried to take back America, mm-hmm. mistake, there was a four months where the mills were closed down and Owen paid the wages of his workers throughout those four months, even oh, though they weren't working. That's nice. Like a... Furlough. Furlough. He's yeah. furloughed them. He's yeah. furloughed them. He created it. But he eventually becomes frustrated with his profit-driven business partners uh. who are obsessed with money. So what he does is he buys 30,000 acres of land in Indiana mm. and he names it New Harmony. Uh. This is going to be his new society. It was called Harmony. Mm-hmm. He renames it New Harmony. Oh. What are your thoughts about that name? I mean, it's a bit... I picture him going in there with like a white gown on. Welcome to New Harmony. Welcome to New Harmony. Even though he's English, but... Yeah. I'm Welsh. But <laughs> welcome to New Harmony, a community where we work together for the leader. For the leader. All you have to do is grow these poppy seeds <laughs> all day long. And give us all your money. <laughs> and so he buys it and he invites any and all to join him there. Mm-hmm. Important, the design, how he designs it. Because he almost starting from scratch. There's a few houses there. Yeah. But he wants to design this utopia almost, this perfect place. Yeah. Let me show you the picture of his design. So that is what he wanted it to look like. That looks pretty impressive. It looks like um, 
I don't know if I can say it looks like Babylonian. <laughs> <laughs> so it's in the middle of a sort of lush green land. Yeah. It's... Rolling hills. Rolling hills. Yeah. But the interesting thing, it's almost like a quad. So there's high buildings in a rectangle mm. around a central green square. Yeah. The idea behind that was this. He wanted these large three-story quadrangular, quadrangular buildings... <laughs> To be elevated in each corner yeah. and at the middle, because in the corners and the middles there'd be lecture halls, concert rooms, mm-hmm. rooms for laboratories and committee meetings. That's good. So big social spaces. Yeah. See so what you think of this. First and second floor of those big quadrangular buildings were for family dwellings. So everyone would live in this one big quadrangular building. Okay. Yeah, we can get some problems there. Yeah, yeah, there's cracks within show. Third floor, and this is very interesting. Third floor was for unmarried residents and, in separate dwellings, children over two years of age. Okay. So any children, any child over two years of age... Was living on their own. Was living on their own. Or not on their own, supervised by the community. Yeah. Why do you think he would do that? Uh, Propaganda? In what way? Well, you can, you can sort of teach the kids from a young age that this is the way to yeah. live. Spot on. So mm. he's trying to indoctrinate them, essentially. Mm. He, it, he had a desire to separate children from their parents so that they could be re-educated, separate from the rest of society. Not the term re-educated. I mean, and it does sound <laughs> bad, but his argument was that the current society has been poisoned and everyone in it, no matter how noble they are, has been poisoned. Mm-hmm. So we have to undo that and we have to make people who are generous and caring and like community. And it was more... It wasn't like the kids were just doing whatever they want. It was like a boarding school, basically. Yeah. In the same way that many people send their kids, maybe not at the age of two, but age of four or five, to a boarding school and they stay there for the rest of their, you know, their, their education. Tenure. Their tenure. <laughs> then it's just a bit like that. Yeah. Like a finishing school. So that's the idea. And like we said, great ideas. Let's see how they're applied. Do you have another picture of what it looked like? (laughs) What it looked like after. shack in the middle of a... (laughs) a I wish I did. So Owen goes east, back over to Europe to try and recruit new members. Mm -hmm. So he goes, right, here we are. You stay there. Sort this society out. Make it equal and everything. I'll be back. Oh, brilliant. He comes back uh, in April 1825. Mm Mm-hmm. And he found around, there were about 800 residents in a chaotic situation. (laughs) Much in need of leadership. So, I mean, the problem that he had is he failed to lay out a clear constitution or the like. Some sort of set of rules that people followed to be here. So, in May, when he comes back, he's like, right, let's get this sorted. He draws out a constitution for a preliminary society. Mm -hmm. Sets out a few things. He says that livestock, so animals... That are owned by people would be taken over by the society they would be shared so if you come to new harmony with free pigs they're not your pigs anymore they're society's they're pig. pigs yeah and i come and i've got four cows they're now your cows as well Do the pigs eventually like rise up <laughs> the kings pigs actually become the leader yeah <laughs> under napoleon yeah. yeah and you couldn't tell which were pigs and which was robert which owen <laughs> all members were to be of the same rank Yep. In essence. So they all there was no king or no leader or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Although there was. Not yeah. that but during a transition period of the year, the society would be governed by a committee led by Owen and his son. So there's going to be a transition period. 
Okay. Because he's like, we're not ready yet to be at the stage where we're all equal. We yeah. need a little bit of guidance. The community would provide education for children and provide medical care. And members were to contribute their best service for the good of society. And when they did something, so when they worked, like in the fields or whatever they did, they would receive credit, which they could use in the community <laughs> store. Like Robert Owen Funbucks. Yeah, Robert Owen Funbucks. <laughs> but not money. No. Credit. 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 So if you do something good, you get credit for that. It's a bit like... What's that thing? Money. Money. <laughs> a bit like money. <laughs> so he launches this preliminary society and then Owen leaves again because he's got to go to Scotland for some business affairs and family affairs. Right, yeah. And in his absence, his son takes over New Harmony. Mm. Problems. Well, let's start with the good stuff. Actually, yeah, let's say there's yeah. some good stuff. I want this to work out. So I'm... culturally and socially, there's some good stuff. Yeah. Frequent dances. <laughs> All right. Well, I thought you said you'd start with the good yeah, stuff. Yeah, maybe not a good one. Yeah. Uh, but schools are provided to girls and boys without any cost. That's good. And there's freedom, total freedom of religion and liberty of opinions. That's nice. So free speech is guaranteed. Yeah. Problems. Is that all the good stuff? That's pretty much all the good stuff. The big problems are a lack of skilled tradesmen. Yeah. And combined with that, you haven't really got many people who are skilled in things like uh, farming. Mm. You've also got a lack... I suppose if you say, do you want to come to this place where you don't have to work, it's more implied that you should. It's not going to bring the creme de la creme. We're going to see that in a second. So loads of people come, and the problem is that they come and they're not willing labourers. They don't really want to be out in the fields. They want to be... You know, doing dances yeah. in the laboratory or whatever. <laughs> in the laboratory. The credit system, yeah. which I mentioned, was highly confusing because credit was decided by the committee. Right. So you would go to the committee and you would say, today I spent four hours um, on the fields. I spent a couple of hours in the school teaching. And then I did this, this, this and this. And I also uh, milked the cows. Yeah. The committee would have to work out individually for each person how much credit they were deserving of. Okay. And that was all based... And then they had to work out how much they were going to charge in the shop for different things. Yeah. So they're basically doing the job of the market, which is a hugely complicated thing. Whereas in the market, if you go, I'm getting paid loads of money, and the shop owner sees that, they just hike up the prices and so yeah. does everyone else. This is being decided by individuals and people. Yeah, that is true. Surely it should be like everything in the shop is free, but it should be instilled that just don't take too much. Yeah, but this is the the big problem because the consumption of goods, mm. so what people buy, massively outruns the production of the goods. Oh, right. So they're producing from their farms and from all their stuff much less than they're actually selling. Yeah. So Owen is actually out of pocket. Owen is subsidising this. He subsidises it to the tune of about £40,000 at the end, which amounted to... 80% of his fortune he right. gave to this community just to keep it going. Yeah. So he returns again in 1826 and he argues, he sees all of this and he goes, not a problem. That's fine. <laughs> we can fix we this. We can fix this. He says, what I think though is that the preliminary society constitution that I put, that's done. We're happy with that. We've had the year transition. We need to be a bit more radical now. Mm. More progress. Yeah. So he says... Freedom of speech, community of property, all property, mm-hmm. equality of duties, so everyone has the same duties that they need to do, mm-hmm. only modified by physical and mental differences, yep. which is a big modifier, yeah. especially on the physical differences. 
Mm. And yeah. the, well, really more on the mentor actually, because in terms of, like if you're a really good teacher, mm. you want, probably want to be teaching rather than. Well, you don't want me in the laboratory and you <laughs> in the field. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, equality of rights across everyone, uninfluenced by sex or condition of all adults, yeah. except black people. Obviously. Obviously. Yeah. Not obviously as in like, no, not in that's the, the right, that's thing, right to thing to do, to do but obviously at the time. At the time, yeah. Saved it. But again, the constitution is very vague on how the economic side of it would work and yeah. demands still massively far outstrip supply. And just three years later in 1829, he dissolves the community. Oh, he gives up. Yeah. And like I say, £40,000 put into it, 80% of his fortune... Gone. So what were the problems with that society? What were the problems? Uh, Why did socialism not work in that instance? Well, it had one thing that I think I saw, it had no communication with the outside world, yeah. which I think you need. Yes. You can't be very completely self-reliant with 300 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't fully committed to it, so they still had credit, which was basically money. money. Yeah. Um, what else was wrong? What about the people? The people, they just seemed a bit selfish, the people. Mm. There was um, a quote which was from his son, Mm. which is, while many of the town's new arrivals did have a real interest in making it a success, the experiment also attracted, quote, crackpots, freeloaders and adventurers whose presence in the town made the success unlikely. Yeah. I suppose everyone has to be on board. It can't be just like most people if it's going to work. So it, it was almost like, and this is summed up again by his son. He wrote this in his journal. He said, the enjoyment of a reformer, someone who's trying to change society, the enjoyment of the reformer is much more in contemplation than in reality. Mm-hmm. So the joy is actually thinking about it, not doing it. <laughs> and we can see that Owen had a really good idea. Mm. But he didn't really want to deal with the actual practicalities of it. The no. practicalities were lost. We kept leaving. Yeah. Yeah. And, but he kept leaving to try and bring more people in. And also, remember, he still had a business and he's running a massive loss at New Harmony. Yeah. So he needs to make money to prop up New Harmony. Who did we know in his cotton factory? He's certainly <laughs> like hiking on prices, yeah. taking everything In down. the cotton factory, he's, in, he's increased whippings. <laughs> By 80%. Yeah. Children workers, he's realised, much cheaper. <laughs> and this is actually mentioned, the, the efforts of Owen are mentioned in the Communist Manifesto by Marx. Yeah. Karl Marx says that... The hero. F- <laughs> no, he doesn't really see him as a hero. He says yeah. that they weren't ready. Mm. It's too early. That people aren't <coughs> yet prepared to live in these conditions. Is it that it sort of ha- has to happen itself? Yes. Yeah. That's what Marx's theory is. Marx doesn't say that we should have a revolution today, now. Mm. He says only when the conditions are right. And he said the conditions were just not right at this point. And Eric Hobsbawm, the historian, talks about these utopian socialists, people that believed in this incredible place that could just be created. Mm. He said they tended to be so firmly convinced that the truth only had to be proclaimed to be instantly adopted by all men of education and sense. The idea that if you just say it, mm. if you just say society is unfair, we should set up a more fair society. So people, gonna, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like yeah. plying a seed and it would just grow immediately. Mm. Doesn't happen. It needs a lot more. So that is New Harmony. New Harmony. New Harmony, which wasn't that harmonious. No. It was a bit of a disaster. 
So, next one. The Paris Commune of 1871. Yep. This falls into Marx's lifetime. So this oh, okay. is something he was able to look at and sort of almost assess as it went. Mm. Bit of background. At this point, France was under an emperor, Napoleon. Napoleon. Not the Napoleon you think. Yeah, Napoleon III. It was Napoleon III. <laughs> who was the nephew of Napoleon. Yeah. He had attempted to take over a portion of Prussia to mm. the east, which was like modern day Germany. Uh, that, this is at the time of Bismarck. Yeah. Yeah. But it had been a massive failure and they'd counter invaded and they'd been pushed all the way back into France mm. and Prussians laid siege to Paris between 1870 and January 1871 yep the siege ends with the surrender of the French army and there's an armistice signed to end the war mm-hmm. but at this period of time Paris had a big population of workers as many as maybe half a million and hundreds of thousands of others who were economically and politically oppressed yeah they didn't have a vote they didn't have any money mm. Not a good condition. Powder keg. Yeah, it is a powder keg. Yeah. Now, the match to this powder keg <laughs> is that the French government... Uh, well, yeah, the French government basically empowered the National Guard yeah. to try and protect Paris. Is that... What is the National Guard? The National Guard is a volunteer army, uh, but it's mainly made up of workers. Weekend soldiers. Yeah, but they're workers. So yeah. the worst thing to do is give weapons and power to workers yeah. at... This time as a powder keg. They're just pe- picking people out of rallies. Yeah, like, you. He he's waving that flag that says "down with government" yeah. with such vigor. I think that, bring him in. Let's get him into the fray. Just pick him up, put him on the other side of the barricade. And he goes, there you go. You have shown initiative, <laughs> leadership by by arguing with everything we've done. You are the perfect person to fight for us. Yeah, come on. Unsurprisingly. That didn't work. Mm. And the commune took formation. They basically laid claim to Paris and said, we're going to start a commune, a community, where we're going to work together and everyone's going to have a say. So exactly. It's commune-ished. Commune-ish. Yeah. And it, it wasn't communist, it was commune-ish. Yes, got it. So what happens? The, government, the National Guard takes over key government sites... And they organise a central committee. There's always central (laughs) committees and things like that. And they organise a democratic election of Mm councillors. 60 councillors are elected, including workers, businessmen, office workers, journalists, scholars, writers. So it goes across society. The council demands that the commune would have no single leader who would have more power than anyone else. Yep. And that everything would be democratic and decisions would be made by consensus. Mm Mm-hmm. Policies. They wanted to get rid of existing hierarchies, existing power structures that yeah. privileged those in the upper class and that oppressed everyone else. Yeah. They got rid of the death penalty. That's nice. And as, as well as military conscription. That's very nice. Which was invented during the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. Basically saying, you are a citizen, you must fight. You don't mm. have a choice. It's not an option. Mm. They... Sought to disrupt power hierarchies, so they ended things like night work in bakeries, because they used to have to do work all the way through the night in bakeries. Why bakeries? I don't know. It doesn't seem like the... It's key, isn't it? Making all that French bread. (laughs) Oh, that's true. (laughs) They awarded pensions to the families of those who were killed while defending the commune. Nice. And they abolished, like, interest on debts. Oh, yeah. Good. But, there were attacks. Because the French army started attacking them. Right. They, they, were, they were divided in the commune. 
Some of them, as they, it was, it, again, you will see this, it's the People's Front of Judea, the Judean the People's, people's Front, front yeah. when we get to the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, although yeah. they're quite different. But some of them were arguing that they should try and expand and they should almost militarily go into other places around France to build their idea, yeah. build their commune. Yeah. Others were like, no, they will peacefully <laughs> decide to join us yeah. at some point. Put flowers in their guns. <laughs> and what happens is the French army regroups yeah. and reattacks. Mm. And on May the 21st, 1871, so it's gone from January pretty much to May, probably even less, they stormed the city, the French army stormed the city and slaughtered tens of thousands of Parisians, oh. including women and children. Bloody so oh, they yeah. can restore the Third Republic. Yeah. They fought back, but didn't really work. Loads were taken prisoners, um, and loads of them to this day who were executed as prisoners were buried in unmarked graves around the city. Oh, that's always sad. Why does it fail? What are some of the problems? Because it's different to Owen and New Harmony. Yeah. It was trying to... um, Well, with New Harmony, it was like building a society from the ground up. Mm. And was it it in Paris? In Paris, yeah. yeah. And this was like... Number one, it's in Paris, and you can't really like... Can't really have the rest of France while Paris is operating by itself. It's it's interesting because New Harmony, like you said, is building up from its its beginning. So you have to build new institutions. Yeah. Paris already has opera halls and schools and everything there. Mm. All you need to do is change the way they're being run. Yeah. So perhaps that's why it was more successful in the front of people actually engaged in it and did the stuff they were normally doing. Mm-hmm. What's the failure then? So you said that Paris is too small. They, they didn't expand. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, and again, it's, it's part of France. Mm. And like everyone else in France is going to say, like, well, we want Paris back. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> not like just a tiny little place yeah. on the side. It's the capital. Yeah. So one of the big reasons you've hit it is that the rest of France basically wanted it back. Mm. And rural France, so peasants, mm. are actually very conservative. They don't want a revolution. No. They like it to stay as it is. There's also a split between socialists and anarchists. (laughs) Socialists wanted more aggression. They Mm. wanted more expansion. Anarchists argued for a more effective spread of ideas to other provinces. That seems weird. Why? Because anarchists anarchists are more aggressive. Let's slow down, people. But that's a misinterpretation of what anarchism is, I think. Anarchism at this point, and in its theory, is voluntary collaboration in the sense that we cannot force you to join us everything will work through voluntary bonds and Mm. voluntary ideas but they split and they they can't decide on what to do Mm -hmm. eric hobsbawne again the historian says that the paris commune was important not so much for what it achieved as what it forecast Mm. it was more formidable as a symbol than as a fact clever so it didn't really achieve anything. It yes. grew and then was Crushed. destroyed. What do you think Marx thought of it? Uh, I think he liked it. Probably just a bit sad they got snuffed out. He said initially he was against it. Really? When it first sprouted up, he was against it. Mm. He felt that, again, they weren't ready. Why weren't they ready? Because it doesn't say workers of Paris unite. It doesn't mm. say workers of France unite. It says workers of the world unite. Oh. 
Mm. Marx argued that a socialist revolution could only take place if the whole world was involved. Mm. And he said that the focus should be building knowledge in the working class of their conditions globally rather than in an isolated revolution. Yeah. So the focus should be not in going, oh, well, we've got a little place here that's a commune, mm. but spreading to the peasants in the countryside and to everyone else. Look how you're being exploited. Look at this. Basically, read my book, <laughs> is what Karl Marx is saying. Read We're not ready yet. Yeah. We need my book to sell more. Look, we need more sales of this volume. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps unfair because he was very, very poor, Karl Marx. Yeah. He got all his money from Engels. Who's Engels? His, like, partner. I mean, I don't know much about Marx. I just know he's old major in an old farm. Yeah. Well, that's sort of Marx and Engels. Is it? Yeah. Oh. So after it was established, so after the Paris Commune was established, he did support it as a potential way of achieving socialism. So he supports it a little bit more once it's, it's made. Mm. But he argues that it's not really socialism. Why? It's just democracy. How? Because the workers haven't taken ownership of the factories if oh. they're just voting in people. Right. He said that the Paris Commune was not the social movement of the working class, but the organised mean of action. So it was just a way of... It was like almost a transition to socialism. It was mm -hmm. a step on the way. Right. The failure of the commune sort of vindicated Marx's idea that the workers needed to build it up slowly. That it couldn't happen at one point. But he still uses it as an example of saying that is how it could work. But we all need to be on the same page for that. Okay. So you say that that could... It was all right. Yeah. Saying. There's a right. blueprint. Yeah. Let's build on that. Mm. Final example. Let's use the slaughter of loads of innocents as a blueprint. Let's build on that. <laughs> let's build. So we slaughtered millions, <laughs> but let's build on that. Let's build on that. And let's, talking, let's about, the other angle. talking about slaughtering millions, mm -hmm. Soviet Union. Ooh. Yeah? Yeah. This is the big one. This is the big one. Yeah. This is the big example that people point to as socialism and communism being an epic fail. <laughs> <laughs> so how... Did the Soviet Union come about? And what was Russia like before the Soviet Union? Uh, it was under a czar. A czar? What's a czar? It's like a king. Yeah. So it's like political absolutism, mm. you would say. Yes. I took the words <laughs> right out of my mouth. So since the 17th century, that's been the system. And then there was something called the emancipation of the serfs in 1861. Yes. Where the serfs are slaves, mm -hmm. basically peasants, and they're allowed to be free. What system of government on Marx's like progress would you say Russia were at uh, so the Tsarist regime you have very powerful king the one before feudalism isn't it well it's almost like a tra the emancipation of the serfs is almost like a transition into feudalism oh, right, yeah. because it's a feudal society they're not slaves so we haven't got kings ruling over slaves mm. but we've got kings nobles and people working for those nobles Oh, okay. Peasants. Yeah. Now, that slowly boils because mm. it's a long way behind Britain, for example. 1861, abolition of this sort of slavery system and moved into the feudal system, mm -hmm. while Britain is expanding its democracy, has a booming economy. It's going pretty well for a lot of people. Mm. Russia seems a long way behind. In 1905, there's the first Russian revolution. And it's spurred by Russia's defeat in the Russo-Japanese War. Yep. Do you know anything about that? Uh, I do know a bit. They, um, 
I think, I don't know what started it. I know Japan, Japan won. Yeah, Japan wiped yeah. the floor with them. But it was the first time that mm. an Asian power had beaten a Western power. In the modern era. In the modern era. Yeah. And it was like, that's embarrassing. Yeah. Like, they really embarrassed themselves. They were hugely embarrassed. Yeah. It's a huge embarrassment for the government. And it's, it's a wake-up call. Mm. Because it's like, we are so technologically behind. I can remember, and I don't remember it very well, there was something to do with the trains and the... Their trains were terrible and they couldn't get the... Yeah, they couldn't get the men or the equipment to get the boats there. Yeah. Because they got battered at sea by the... I've got a friend at uni who's going to kill me if I get this wrong. The Yamato or the Yamano. It's like a ship. Yamato slash no. <laughs> yeah. There's like an amazing Japanese ship that wiped the floor. The ocean floor. Because of that... The Tsar at the time, Nicholas II, is forced into a series of liberal political reforms. Mm -hmm. So we have the establishment of elected representatives. We have a multi-party system, Mm -hmm. but the Tsar stays in a kind of ceremonial role. Not to go harp on it too much, but what was the reason for the uh, Russo-Japanese War? Do you know? Cut this out if you don't. (laughs) It was about territory. It was about Manchuria. Oh, okay. Russia wanted a warm seaport in the mm. Pacific. Mm-hmm. So they occupied part of Manchuria, sort of the Chinese mainland. Yeah. And the Japanese wanted to occupy Manchuria. Yeah. <laughs> so the Japanese basically kicked them out. Yeah. I think the Russians also wanted to occupy North Korea. Yeah. As a buttress against Japanese power. Mm-hmm. So I think that was the reason. Got it. Got it. We've seen then a series of liberal political reforms, elected representatives, multi-party system. What have we moved into now? Uh, so we've gone from we went very quickly from slavery to feudalism. Oh, it's the the, the bourgeois revolution. Yeah, we've had a bourgeois revolution. Yeah, the the rich, the nobility have rebelled against this czarist system. They see it as being ineffective. We need a more effective system. Essentially early democratic capitalism. Yeah. 1905. Marx, when he talked about capitalism, we've seen this multiple times, he said, you have to have a long period of capitalism mm. before you have proletariat revolution. To get money and the products yeah. and all that in. And he looked at about, he said about 100 to 150 years. Mm. Which seems a bit arbitrary, but... <laughs> but again, all the way through, he said, only when they're ready yeah. to do it. This Russian Revolution was witnessed by someone called Vladimir Lenin. Vladimir Lenin. Remember the name. And he said this was the great dress rehearsal. <laughs> oh, this hey. revolution. I like this guy. So we fast forward. 1917. Mm-hmm. And another war has brought Russia to the brink. World War One. Yep. The Tsar has basically screwed it all up. Yeah. He's having an absolute... Yeah. He because he took, he took personal military control... Yeah. Over the whole operation, <laughs> which is never a good Rolls idea. Up sleeves. So we have in February of 1917, which actually took place in March, mm-hmm. but it was called March. the February Revolution. Okay. Any yeah. idea why? This just shows how far Russia was behind the rest of Europe. Uh, Literally, got their mumps wrong. Why would they have their mumps wrong? Because why would they have their mumps wrong? How do you check what month you're on? Well, calendar. Yeah. They're not buying any calendars. <laughs> <laughs> they, this is the, they hadn't adopted the Julian calendar. Oh, okay. So oh. they were using a different calendar to that which we what were using. calendar were they using? 
I had a Russian calendar. How are different calendars? I don't know. <laughs> but that just shows that they were completely yeah. distinct yeah. from Europe at this point. On March the 11th, the troops of the Petrograd Army Garrison, which was St. Petersburg. Yep. Why did it change its name? During the war with Germany. To St. Petersburg? No, it changed it from St. Petersburg to Petrograd. Uh, because St. Petersburg was set up by a czar? No, it sounded too German. Oh. So they wanted a more Russian-sounding name. Yeah. They were called out... So these troops were called out to stop an uprising. Mm-hmm. And in some places, they opened fire. So they started shooting at the protesters. But the, they eventually, the troops began to say, we're shooting our own people. We're not, we don't want to do that. Yeah. So in February, the Duma, which is like a, the elected body, yep. they form a provisional government. So they form a new government... And they get rid of the Tsar. He abdicates. Not killed. Mm-hmm. He just leaves his throne. So it ends centuries of Russian Romanov rule, which was the ruling family. Yeah. The leaders establish a liberal programme of rights. So freedom of speech, equality before the law, right of the unions to organise and strike. But they oppose a violent social revolution. Yeah. So this is really, we're getting to the point where Russia is now about... It's hard to quantify, but just slightly behind where Britain is. Maybe slightly ahead with some of those reforms. But freedom of speech, a real democracy, less power to the the ruling class. Yeah. However, goes wrong. So that's the February revolution. Yeah. There is then an October revolution. Oh, that's that's a big one. That's the one led by Lenin. Yeah. And it's also known as the Bolshevik revolution. The problem is that they continue to be involved in the war. The provisional government continues to support World War One and the efforts against the Germans. Mm. And Russia has huge food supply problems. Peasants loot farms and food riots erupt in cities. Mm-hmm. So Lenin jumps upon that and forms a Bolshevik communist government. Yeah. Now, looking back at history, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. There were multiple ways that they could have gone. They could have stayed with the provisional government, but there mm. were also two parties that were arguing, the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Bolsheviks literally means majority, and Mensheviks means minority. Oh, right. But it's not true. The Mensheviks were actually the majority. Oh. That's not what then. Because, genius, Lenin just decided that they'd be called the Bolsheviks. Oh. <laughs> Clever. And he just went, yeah. Menshevik. We're, we're the Bolsheviks. So and I they're call, the Mensheviks. I call myself the popular one. The popular party. The, popular the people's one. popular party. Because <laughs> if you look at communist countries around the globe, and in fact, basically all dictatorships around the globe, my theory is you can tell how dodgy a country is by how good it sounds. <laughs> it's true. So like, the people's own republic, run by the people. <laughs> For the people, with the people. So the People's Republic of China, the Democratic Republic of Congo. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) United Kingdom. Oh. United States of America. Yeah. Yeah. France. Doesn't really work. Doesn't really. So both the Bolsheviks and Mensheviks were Marxists. They both believed in the ideas of Marx. But they split in 1903 at the big conference of Marxists that they have called the sort of internationals. They all meet up. The Mensheviks, like large, loosely organised democratic party where members could disagree and argue and debate, mm-hmm. they're prepared to work with the provisional government and liberals in Russia. Yep. So they're not calling for immediate revolution and they're a bit hesitant to use violence. They're not big fans of violence. 
It's Mensheviks. Mensheviks. Yeah. Bolsheviks. Oh. They are hardline revolutionaries. Mm. Lenin has no time for democracy and no time even for the masses. Wow. He says the masses aren't, they, they don't understand. We need to lead the way. So they say to lead this way, we need a small, tightly organised, strictly disciplined party of full-time members uh-huh. who did what they were told, followed the party line in every way, uh-huh. and were, as a result, more difficult for the Tsarist police to infiltrate. Okay. And he called his group hards and the opponents softs. <laughs> that was his distinction. Yeah. Essentially, he wants professional revolutionaries mm-hmm. to lead the way. Problems? Well, I mean, if you if you're a socialist revolution mm. and you don't have time for you know the people, <laughs> that little side note. I mean, something's going to go wrong. That's there. what Trotsky said. So Trotsky, very famous communist, mm-hmm. he was part of the Mensheviks at this point, and he told Lenin at one point, "You're dictating. No, you're advocating dictatorship." Yeah. And Lenin said, "There's no other way. Yeah. That's the only way we can do this." So his idea, known as Leninism, is essentially you can't achieve socialism through electoral struggle. You can't do it through voting. It doesn't have inevitability that things will become socialist. You have to fight for it. Mm. So he issues, he comes back from exile in Switzerland. And interestingly, the Germans during World War One actually support him in getting back up to Russia. Because they think he's going to be a loose cannon. He's going to sow some seeds. He's going to sow some seeds. He comes back. He issues something called the April (laughs) Feces. All right. Yeah. As in like a document. Yeah, yeah. Feces. Feces. And he says, first of all, he says that Russia is passing from the first stage of revolution to the second stage. Well, they're not the seventh stage. Well, he's saying that they've done... They've done the capitalist revolution. They're now right. time for the workers' revolution. Yeah. Okay. Which they're not. They're not. Because they've only... too quick. Too, way too quick. Yeah. Like a few months Don't of being capitalist, money. really. Yeah. And yeah, they haven't got the, the surplus all, that they need. All the mass work and po- workers' population. And this is yeah. the thing. He comes in and he promises, this is big slogan, bread, peace and land. I will give you bread, peace and land. Solid. 80% of Russians lived by agriculture. Mm. So it's a peasant economy. They want... So they have bread, peace and land. But they don't because the food chain's all destroyed oh, right. because of war. And he's saying, I'm going to give you that back. Mm. And for years and years, all their stuff has been taken and given to the Tsar. Oh, right. And Lenin's saying, we're not going to take all your food. <laughs> we're going to take all your food, but then we're going to give it back to you. A little bit of it back yeah, to you. Yeah, a little bit, not much. So his idea is based on the concept of a vanguard party that will lead the way. Yeah. So during this period where the dictatorship of the proletariat, where the workers rule, he says, well, we can't actually trust the workers to rule, but me and a few of my friends will rule on your behalf. We are the vanguard party and we will do everything in your interest. So they're sort of holding down the fort until they can give it all back. Holding down the fort is a really good way of putting it. Because Lenin... According to Hobsbawm again, the historian, mm-hmm. he argues that Lenin knew that the conditions for a socialist revolution were not there in Russia. They weren't present. Yeah. But the conditions of World War I were unique in the sense that it could spark a worldwide revolution. Mm. He was like, we can't miss this opportunity. So there's a theory that 
he took over Russia and he said, the people aren't ready for this. Mm. I know they're not ready, but what we'll do is I'll just hold this, hold mm. it firm as an example to the rest of the world. Yeah. And when the countries of the world that are actually ready for it, Germany, Britain, mm. France, the developed nations, when they become communist, then we can go to being actually what we're supposed to be. Yeah. Which is not a dictatorship by me yeah. or a vanguard party. So it's like a holding motion. Yeah. Waiting for the rest of the world to move. And the first no- line of the Internationale, which is like their, um, the anthem of Marxism, socialism yeah. and communism, is people hear the signal. Mm. Like, rally with us. Like, we've put up the bat signal. Yeah. Now you all need to follow suit. Got it. And he just wanted it to be an example. He wanted to... I mean, it was rhetoric, so making me want to... Exactly. But he, he, his idea was that the people want someone to lead them. Mm. They don't necessarily know what they want. They want someone to lead them. And he has their best interests in mind when he's doing it. Mm-hmm. But the Bolsheviks commit a major error in 1920. So yeah. 1917, they've taken over and there's a huge period of civil war between um, different parts of Russian society. So the mm-hmm. old aristocracy are obviously not going to be happy with this. Yeah, they're not the biggest fans. And they famously, the Tsar is, and his family are gathered up and killed. Oh. And you know Anastasia, that film? I've seen the film. That She is the supposed like escaped daughter of the Tsar. Yeah. That's the story. Total rubbish. Total, well, the Rasputin in the film as well. Yeah, Rasputin. He's like a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> but she, you know, the Soviets killed her. Yeah, okay. They're not going to mess around. <laughs> there's one thing, if there's one thing the Soviets could do is kill people. <laughs> and so they killed her. One thing they had locked down. And there's an argument as well, does Marx advocate this? Can you live in a socialist society with an aristocracy? Mm. No, you no. can't. And all the way back to Robert Owen, he recognised that the need for re-education within a socialist society. People need to get rid of the ideas of the past, their individualism, their obsession over the money and materials. Mm-hmm. The big mistake they make in 1920 is they still believe that there should be an international revolution. They still believe that other countries should follow Russia's example. Yeah. But now they structure that to say that everyone should follow the exact pattern of a Leninist vanguard party. Okay. What does that mean? Does that mean they should have a vanguard party and do a thing where they will hold it together until everyone yes. else comes in? They need to have professional revolutionaries. Okay. So you need to have a core of people who act on the interests of the people. Mm. Socialist leaders. Yeah, which in itself... Seems strange. Oxymoron, isn't yeah. it? And this draws, unsurprisingly, massive criticism from other Marxists. Mm. Marxist revisionist. And again, we get the Judean People's Front and the People's Front of Judea. (laughs) So someone like Rosa Luxemburg, Red Rosa, as she was known. Red Rosa. She argued that a revolutionary party that demanded blind obedience would create an absolute dividing wall between leaders and the membership. Okay. So there would be, it wouldn't really be a workers' party. It would be a party led with the worker's name, mm. but in reality, you don't know who's who's the aristocracy and who's... who's what. Yeah. So, when they had, like, this workers' party, were they actually, like, workers? They were, like, the people, but they were just... Lift, like, a few of them were lifted up into mm. this... I mean, they weren't. Like, Lenin was a, a writer. Yeah. He wasn't like it. He didn't work in... Yeah. But his idea is that 
well, it is quite bourgeois, but his idea was that I am going to use my talents to achieve the communist revolution. Mm. And Marx doesn't say, his idea isn't that just in communism everyone's working in a factory. <laughs> he says my ideal world will be where you wake up and you go fishing and then you plough the field and then you go and write poetry and then you go and it's a, a mixed life of doing basically what you want to do, a meaningful uh, labour. Yeah. But Lenin's structure didn't allow for that to happen. Right. Who do we get after Lenin? Oh, uh, Stalin. Stalin. Yeah. Now, for some communists, Stalin... Well, that some communists would argue, well, Lenin was all right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he wasn't great. Like, mm-hmm. he did. There were some big purges and civil war and wiping out opponents of the system. I suppose when you got Stalin following you, yeah. you, you always <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. Stalin was like, I'm not going to follow that. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, no. Big. The interesting Let's thing, do that times ten. The interesting thing about Stalin is he shifts the policy. Mm. He shifts it from global communist revolution to what he calls socialism in one country. Okay. He says, no, you know, Britain can be capitalist. America can be capitalist. We're not going to try and convert everyone. Mm. We'll just stay as we are. But we'll take over other countries and just make ourselves bigger. Uh, How, in some ways, does Lenin sort of lay the way for Stalin? Uh, well, he sets up a party, doesn't he? A party in charge of everything. Mm. And a party in charge of everything, the person in charge of that party is like a leader. Yeah. So he allows him to sort of like... Creates rule. a dictation. Yeah. And the thing about the Soviet Union throughout all of this is that Stalin obviously is responsible for more deaths than Hitler. Yeah. Like, some terrible purges. Millions of people. And there's, we could talk forever about things like mm. Ukrainian famine and these terrible policies that just result in the deaths of people. Mm. Just the, like, purges in Russia, death yeah. of Stalin style. Yeah. Just, per- like, the secret police rounding up anyone who speaks against... The party. The party. It's all right, because they call each other comrades. And that's what I was going to say, because... In the sound of it and in the, the rhetoric of it, it's all, we're all the same. Comrade, mm. comrade, he wasn't Tsar Stalin, he was Comrade, he was comrade Stalin. Stalin. Yeah. And Comrade Stalin was the same, same as any comrade in the Soviet Union. Mm. But in reality, that wasn't the case. No. And there's a book by Simon Seabag Montefiore and his title... The Simon Seabag Montefiore. Yeah. He calls Stalin, the book is called The Court of the Red Tsar. Yeah. So he's just a red czar. Yeah, he's a he's a czar. He's a dictator. Why then does the Soviet Union fail? Do you think? What do you mean fail? Why? Why does it fail? Why communism it, or why does it uh, fail? In... Good question. So why is it why is it an example of that typical? It's a good idea, but in practice, because uh, it wasn't really communist. It didn't go through the Marxist steps. Mm-hmm. So, so it skipped some steps. Yeah, it was run by Stalin. Yeah, yeah, so a dictator. Yeah. Uh, why else? I don't know. It's poor. Very poor. Although, well, it does uh, industrialise massively. It goes from being one of the poorest countries in Europe to the richest. Oh, wow. Well, with the five years. Even though they're disastrous, they basically... It's just dictatorship. Yeah. It's just pure dictatorship. And that will instantly boost your, your economy. Mm. Well, if we look at things like Robert Owen's society... New Harmony and the Paris Commune, as a core principle, they had freedom of speech mm. and freedom of association. Yet, communism, Soviet communism, 
shut that down entirely, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Mm. Because it's based on the premise that you can't trust the people to do what's right for themselves. Yeah, you have to lead the people. You have to lead the people for what's best for them. Yeah. It's ridiculous, really. Yeah. It's, it's like it's not... It wasn't a socialist re- revolution. And I think mm. this takes us to the kind of conclusions, mm. which is why... First of all, has it always failed? And second of all, because there, there are, there's obviously things I could talk about, and you mentioned one right at the beginning, which is the NHS, mm. and the integration of socialist ideas into Western society. Mm-hmm. Things like pensions, minimum wage, safety nets, um, public services, schools, all of these things are socialist ideas. But why, on these large scales, why in the examples that I've shown you, has socialism failed? Uh... It's a very simple question, James. I don't know why I take it. Well, let's come on. Let's wrap this up. Well, the Paris one got snuffed out, mm-hmm. so the world wasn't ready to move with it. Yeah. Um, sometimes run by the wrong people. Yeah. And that's not just saying like Lenin and Stalin. That's what's his face. Robert Owen. Robert Owen. Um, that sort of idea that it's nicer to think about these things to actually do them. And just misinterpreting like what it is. That's a Lenin sort Yeah, I mean, it, you could almost say it's a combination of perhaps the flaws of Marx's argument, mm. but also the wrongful application of his argument. Yeah. And the weaponisation of his arguments. What happened to Lenin? Well, he, he just died. Of old oh, age. Really? Yeah. Yeah. To get all I know about Soviet Russia is Animal Farm. <laughs> <laughs> well, he died. He dies of old age, yeah. and there's obviously a bit of a, a problem there because he's again. You need a glorious leader mm. to tell you what the people want. Yeah. So we had a little bit of a, a power struggle, and the person that they least thought would get it would be Stalin. Stalin's not his real name. No. Stalin means Man of Steel. Short. <laughs> <laughs> yep, five foot three. Yeah, <laughs> and no one really thought he was any good. His yeah. nickname was Comrade Card Index. Card Index. Because his job was doing all the admin. Oh right. Like he he got all the admin at like all new members. They mm. would be sent to him, and he would file them. Oh right. But through that filing, he built up his methodical knowledge of people. Oh, so right. he had the story on everyone. Because he had their access to their records. Man of the people. <laughs> but a man of the, who could blackmail the people yeah, into doing what he wanted. Very easily. And he did little tricks like another of the big favourites to take over was Trotsky, who I mentioned earlier. Mm. A Menshevik. A little bit more moderate than measured. Stalin. Yeah, a bit more measured. Well, again, <laughs> down with faint praise. A bit more measured than Stalin. And Tr- there was a big ceremony for Lenin's death. Because Lenin is the hero of the revolution and hugely loved in... Oh, I've seen the death of Stalin. <laughs> don't don't patronise me. Yeah, but that's not about Lenin. That's about the death of Stalin. Good point. <laughs> Go on. Um, so he dies, massive ceremony, and everyone's all up on it. And Stalin is in charge, because he's comrade card index, he's mm. in charge of sending out the invites. Yeah. Sends one out to Trotsky, gives him the wrong day. Oof. Day after. That'll do it. So Stalin is at the ceremony and he puts himself front and centre at Lenin's death. Mm. And he's going, Comrade Lenin, the great hero of the revolution. And he's like, 
Isn't it a shame that Trotsky couldn't be bothered to be here? <laughs> I'd be fuming. <laughs> so for all these things, he, he worms his way to the top of the party. Yeah. And even so, there's a period where he's still not totally in control, but mm. eventually he takes total dictatorial control. Forms the inner committee. Yeah. Anyway, so that are, there are some examples of socialism in practice, or maybe mm. not in practice, maybe they didn't apply it properly, and some of the failures. Let's finish with a quick quiz go on I'm ready I, for this. I think this is the most highbrow quick quiz I've ever done I think you're going to get some of these well I think you'll get most of them actually number one what was the name of the town that Robert Owen set up Harmony New Harmony New Harmony question two why did New Harmony fail oh it was a myriad of reasons you know, give me one or two uh, well, as his son said, there were people that really believed in it, but mm. there was also the crackpots yeah. and the losers. Yeah. Uh, and they just sort of like, it didn't work in a perfect harmony. Didn't work in harmony. Mm. Didn't live up to its name. What policies did the Paris Commune put in place? Just one or two policies. I think that's quite difficult. Well, they're pretty obvious when you think about it. <laughs> uh, free education? Uh, yeah. Mm. Uh, I don't there was one about uh, bakeries. Oh, uh, bakeries don't have to work for throughout the night. Throughout the night, yeah. yeah. What question four? What is the difference between a Bolshevik and a Menshevik? Uh, a Menshevik is more measured, yeah, and sort of like wants the process to happen, mm-hmm. and a Bolshevik is is hard. Yeah, like they 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 want to rule through the vanguard yes. party or whatever it's called. Good word. Yeah, and linked to that question five: How is Leninism different to classical Marxism? Uh, they want to hold on to the state and try and keep it together with the people's interest in hand, while still sort of dictating the people until the world catches up with them and sort yeah. of like sparks its own revolution. Very good. Oh, that's five out of five. Is that all of them? That's five, five questions, yeah. Boom. Um, so what are your thoughts then? Socialism, yes. Socialism, no. Is it a no-goshalism? <laughs> uh, I think socialism, yes. I mean, it's, it's all very nice in theory. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I think we'll finish. Say goodbye. Uh, goodbye. It's very good. Bye. Bye.